Section six of the life of John Churchill, Duke of Marlborough, by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter four. William and Mary. Part one. In the disputes as to the way in which the government was to be settled, Lord Churchill voted for a regency, probably from some lingering attachment to the cause of James the Second but this did not prevent his being rewarded by william with decided tokens of favour for the services which he had rendered on the fourteenth of february he was sworn a member of the privy council and was made a lord of the bedchamber and on the ninth of april he was created earl of marlborough he probably chose this title because his mother had been connected with the lays earls of marlborough a family which had become extinct in 1679. As he had no family estate, he built himself a house called Holywell House near St. Albans on a property which had belonged to his wife's family. She had a liking for the place, which on the death of her brother had passed to her and her sisters, and to please her, Marlborough bought up the shares of her sisters and built a splendid mansion there, which was long their favourite residence though william had thought it proper to reward marlborough for his services he put little confidence in him and gave him no share in the government but he soon found occasion to make use of his military talents the peace of nijmegen had left europe still alarmed at the power of louis the fourteenth and at the constant encroachments which he made on the dominions of neighbouring princes in sixteen eighty six the german princes had bound themselves closely together by the treaty of augsburg for the purpose of mutual defence the emperor's successes had freed him from any further danger on the side of turkey and he was now in a position to resist louis the fourteenth the treaty of augsburg was joined by the king of sweden and by the king of spain who wished to secure the safety of the netherlands from the attacks of france in 1688, just at the time when William was meditating his descent upon England, the attitude of the empire and the German princes had become so threatening that Louis the Fourteenth decided to declare war at once. His wisest plan would have been to send his troops into Holland, which would have made William's descent upon England impossible, for under such dangerous circumstances the dutch could not have spared their captain-general with the flower of their troops but louis the fourteenth's aim was to crush the house of austria so as to render easier his future schemes on spain he seems to have lacked the intuition which would have shown him that william of orange was really his most formidable enemy and that everything should be sacrificed to keep him from establishing himself in england the French troops were ordered into the Palatinate and laid siege to Philipsburg, and the Dutch, whom Louis the Fourteenth had estranged by his interference with their commerce and by his persecution of the Protestants, no longer hesitated to give William of Orange full liberty to act as he liked. Louis the Fourteenth was then at the height of his power and had been on the throne for forty-five years he had become king at the age of four and a half and for the first eighteen years of his reign all power had been in the hands of his great minister cardinal mazarin 
but on Mazarin's death in 1661, Louis XIV showed at once that he meant to be king indeed. Mazarin had no successor, and Louis XIV himself was his own first minister. He astonished everyone by this decision, for till then none had suspected that he was possessed of any great powers. His education had been shamefully neglected, he was entirely illiterate, and was said to have shown as a boy an utter incapacity to learn. But he soon made it clear when he took the management of affairs into his own hands that he possessed enormous industry and an indomitable power of will. He had no real greatness. He could never rise above personal ambition and desire for personal aggrandizement, which with him was an intense passion. He believed implicitly in himself and in his own greatness, and knew with consummate art how to act as a great king. Mazarin, whilst accumulating an immense fortune for himself, had always kept Louis the Fourteenth short of money, and magnificence at court had been impossible under his rule. Louis the Fourteenth, when he became his own master, set to work at once to make his court the most magnificent in Europe. With his love for hard work, he united a great delight in the amusements of life. His fine person and elegant manners fitted him to be the centre of a gay and splendid court. He disdained none of the accomplishments of a courtier, and was distinguished by his graceful dancing. His court was as licentious as that of Charles II of England, but there was more decorum in its license. It absorbed into itself all the life of the French nation. This was the great age of French literature, and all the poets and writers of the day formed part of Louis XIV's court and wrote for him and at his bidding. Paris was adorned with splendid works of art to commemorate his greatness. The Louvre and Saint-Germain were embellished. The splendid palace of Versailles was built because Louis XIV wished to have his court away from Paris. In all his actions we see an intense desire to gratify himself and to add to the greatness of his house. For France itself, he had no care. In his personal relations he was equally cold and selfish. He was incapable of real passion, and though he loved one woman after another, his love was to him nothing but a necessary amusement, and when he tired of one favorite, he quickly turned to another. By himself he would never have reached the pitch of greatness which he did, but fortune surrounded him with a number of great ministers whose talents he knew how to value. Cardinal Richelieu and his successor and pupil, Cardinal Mazarin, had raised France to a political importance in Europe which she had never before enjoyed. Louis Fourteenth inherited the fruits of their policy. To his minister of finance, Colbert, he owed an enormous increase in the wealth and resources of the nation. Colbert encouraged manufacture and created French commerce. He introduced almost every year some new manufacture into France and watched over it with fostering care. This prosperity was not likely to last, for it chiefly depended on the manufacture of the luxuries demanded by an expensive court and a magnificent king, and Colbert's theory was in all cases to encourage trade by protection. 
but he made the country rich enough to supply the enormous demands made upon it by louis the fourteenth both for his domestic expenses and his wars in lyon his minister for foreign affairs louis the fourteenth possessed one of the most acute diplomatists of that or any other age colbert during his later years experienced much opposition from louvois the minister of war a man of strong overbearing character with great genius in military matters who had no scruples as to the means he employed and desired to have the entire management of affairs in his own hands it was from him that louis the fourteenth received the most powerful support in his aggressions upon europe louis the fourteenth desired to remake his frontier according to his own pleasure in sixteen seventy four he added franche comte to his dominions in sixteen seventy nine he established chambers of reunion to examine the changes made in the frontier by the treaties of westphalia aix-la-chapelle and nijmegen of course these chambers settled all disputed points as louis the fourteenth wished and he at once occupied with his troops the districts which they awarded to him he strengthened his frontier by an iron chain of fortresses planned by vauban the most skilful engineer of the day and was not afraid to defy all europe the death of colbert and lyon left things more than ever in his own hands and louis the fourteenth felt himself competent to manage everything colbert had humoured him by letting him believe that he did everything himself and louis the fourteenth believed implicitly in his own capacity but difficult times were at hand for he had managed by his aggressions to set all europe against him and by his impolitic zeal for the catholic religion he weakened his position at home during the latter half of his life he fell completely under the influence of madame de maintenon she was a woman of a serious and religious turn of mind who came to the palace as governess to some of louis the fourteenth's children after the death of the queen maria theresa in sixteen eighty three louis the fourteenth was privately married to madame de maintenon though she was never acknowledged as queen under her influence the character of the court gradually changed and religion became the fashion the jesuits obtained complete mastery over the king and he thought to atone for his former irregular life by acts of bigoted religious zeal the climax of his catholic zeal was the revocation in sixteen eighty five of the edict of nantes by which henry the fourth had granted sufficient toleration to the huguenots to enable them to live in safety louis the fourteenth had begun by permitting the most horrible persecutions and encouraging forced conversions brought about by quartering soldiers on the unhappy protestant families now protestant worship was entirely forbidden and all children were ordered to be brought up as catholics whilst severe measures were taken to prevent any huguenot from flying the country this treatment of the protestants was not only cruel it was also most foolish and short-sighted at the beginning of louis the fourteenth's reign there were nearly two million huguenots in france they were the most industrious and intelligent citizens in the country 
they had produced some of the bravest soldiers and some of the ablest financiers and were clever artificers in every branch of manufacture the revocation of the edict of nantes compelled these loyal and useful subjects to flee at peril of their life leaving all their goods behind them to countries where they might find toleration for their religion many went to england many to holland to switzerland and the protestant countries of germany everywhere they were welcomed and protected for if louis the fourteenth could not appreciate their value other governments were not slow to see the advantages that might be reaped from their thrifty habits and skill in manufacture even now it is easy to see the way in which english manufacture profited by the aid of the french refugees and amongst the wealthiest as well as the poorest of our fellow-countrymen we continually notice names which show us that their ancestors were amongst those whom the cruelty of louis the fourteenth forced to seek a new home in a foreign land end of section six